0: Welcome to The AR Show, where I dive deep into augmented reality with a focus on the technology and uses of smart glasses and the people behind them. I'm your host, Jason McDowell. Today's conversation is with Avi Barzev. Avi has been a pioneer, architect and advisor in spatial computing for nearly 30 years, both behind the scenes at the world's largest tech companies and in the industry at large. In early 2010, he helped found and invent the HoloLens at Microsoft, developing the first prototypes, demos, patents, plans, and UX concepts. At Bing, he built the first prototypes for developer-facing aspects of AR, which we now call the AR Cloud. At Amazon, he helped launch Prime Air and worked on the Echo Frame glasses. More recently, he helped Apple advance its own undisclosed projects. In this, the first of two parts of our conversation, Avi shares stories from his early career, including the work he did in the 1990s for Disney on Aladdin's Magic Carpet VR ride. We talk about the origins of the HoloLens, his work at Amazon, and a bit about what he did at Apple. He notes across all of the big companies and small startups he advises, he helps them peer deeply into the future.
1: Prototype the future. Take whatever we can take. If we have to build new prototypes, we'll build them. If we take off the shelf, take it but prototype those experiences that convince people of what the right path is and do it cheaply, do it quickly, do it in in two to six weeks of work, show somebody in rough form what the future, several years in the future could be like with more polish, but do it in such a way that you can convey the correct emotional reaction to the future so that we can tell if we're gonna love it or hate it as early as possible.
0: He goes on to share his perspective on the major players and talks about some of the risks he sees for the technology. As a reminder, you can find the show notes for this and other episodes at our website, thearshow.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-S-H-O-W.com. Let's dive in. Avi, what was memorable about your ninth birthday?
1: Well, that was the year that the first Star Wars came out, Episode Four. I think I'd seen it once before, but we were going to see it on my birthday, and I was super excited. So we we didn't have a lot of money back then, and my parents gave me a choice. Either we could get tickets for me and my friends to go see the movie, or I could get the cool X-Wing fighter toy that just came out. Um, I think it was the X-Wing. And so I chose the tickets, and we all, in New York City, hopped on the subway to get to the theater, and amazingly, I found a wallet. Normally, I would try to return the wallets, but this one had absolutely no identification, no credit cards or anything, and it had thirty-three dollars in it. And so it was sort of a bonus in in choosing the uh, the more generous option. I wound up, you know, sort of winning twice um, because we after the show we all went to the toy store and everybody got an action figure. So that was just for me. That was kind of like, okay, this works. I can I can. Give things away and not focus so much on myself and and good things will still happen from that. And I kind of, you know, take it out to heart for a long time. It's it's better to to give things away than to hoard, because many good things will happen that you don't even you can't even imagine what they might be.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was I had a similar experience when I was young. There was shopping in a clothing store, and I was in the changing room and I'd found a little envelope, the envelopes of the ATM machines back when we used to use cash. ATM machines would deliver your cash and you could put it in this little money-sized envelope. And there was one laying on the floor and it was had $100 in it. And two, I was probably around the same age and that was an insane amount of money. And so, I took this and I showed it to my mom and then she properly said, why don't you see if it belongs to anybody? And so, I took it to the manager of the store and I gave them the money and explained what happened. And... They said, thanks. We'll put a notice here. We'll see if anybody comes back for it. And I checked in, like, uh, whatever. I gave them my name as well. I checked in a few days later, a week later, and they said, nobody came back and claimed it. It's yours. That's so why I ended up with $100 cash in the end. Anyway, it was, uh, it was an amazing moment in which doing the right thing felt good, both at the moment that I did it, that somebody might return their cash, but also came back around just as it did for you. That's
1: funny. Yeah, it often works that way. And you know, I've also found other wallets since then, strangely. Uh, this seems to happen a lot. Uh, and I've returned the other ones. If, even if they just have a credit card, it's usually enough to get a message to the owner uh, of the wallet. Uh, but if there's no identification at all, then you're really relying on the honor system for, for everybody in this case. Yeah. But it's good that they uh, didn't take the money, and they followed through, and you got it. So that, that worked out great.
0: Yeah, worked out great. So was the particular... Content that you were excited about that exposure to Star Wars, the Episode Four, the first Star Wars release, did that stick with you in any particular way?
1: Uh, well, given that I've seen the movie probably two hundred times at this point, maybe I stopped counting after a hundred or so. Uh, it was it was very impactful, and uh, I think the impact has changed. When I was when I was that age, I really wanted to be Luke Skywalker, and then as I got older, I really wanted to be Han Solo, and, and sort of appealed to be more of the rogue element. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was very formative, and in, in fact, that one of the most you know memorable things was this idea of, of holograms, the Star Wars holograms, uh, and it, it came back later in my career where I made a you know a demo that essentially you could think of as 3D video using uh, a Kinect to capture likeness, and other people have also have also done this, but I got to do it early because I, I was at Microsoft in, in 2009, so I got to play with it before it was released, and and it, the technique that I used in order to get rid of some of the edge artifacts wound up making it look just like a Star Wars hologram, not translucent, but but glowy around the edges. So I just started calling it uh, holographic telepresence. Um, and uh, there's some controversy about whether we should call it holograms or not because it's not a photographic hologram in the, in the truest sense, but I figure there's really no better term for talking about these things that we create in midair than, than holograms. So people get it, people understand it.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this point of some of the visual artifacts being claimed as features, and often sometimes you can do that, but when the, you have something like that where you're trying to do edge detection and eliminate the background, you got just the foreground, the person, you claim that as a feature. It looks like it re- represents kind of the similar sort of experience we had with the hologram and Princess Leia in there. Yeah. Exactly. But one of the things that I saw in your background that I thought was really amazing, because all the guests have mentioned it as one of the formative moments in their journey in spatial computing, was the work that you'd done on Disney's Aladdin Magic Carpet Ride. What did that mean kind of for the industry, that particular ride, that particular experience that was made at Disney World?
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, it was um, it was an expensive piece of time travel, because Everything that we did on these high-end SGI supercomputers, you know, they cost half a million dollars each. Everything we did there can be done today on hardware that costs a couple hundred dollars, right? What What the people at Disney that started the project—I it was actually my first uh, serious job, and and it was interesting, kind of how I fell into that job as well. But I was very junior uh, when we were there. Not only me, actually, Jesse Schell, you may have heard about. He was he worked on the same project uh, as what probably his first. Real job, also, uh, and a few other people that have gone on to do really fun things. It was just a great incubator for the future. So Disney somehow agreed to spend $20 million to build this thing that would not technically be possible any other way. And and we spent the money mostly on on hardware and really great artists, great designers, Disney quality, uh, everything. Uh, And we got to build something that really wouldn't be possible to build for the next 20 years, probably and that was it was awesome being you know being chosen to be on that project and getting to work with these this caliber of people was was you know super helpful for me in my learning process but it was also just really Really fun, and for a lot of people, I guess they'd never really seen VR and became much more accessible to them, even though it was so expensive. By putting it in the theme parks, people could see it. So I think we had that first year; hundred thousand mm. people came through to see it, which is more than I think any other any other VR had seen uh, for a really long time. Um, and uh, and not everybody got to try it because there were only four. Stations that you could try it, but everybody got to watch and it was from the audience, and and for the lucky people who got to try it, they had a pretty pretty amazing experience. The design was done so well that you really felt like you are flying on a magic carpet in in the movie as a cartoon. If you looked down, you saw your, you had Disney hands and uh, and everything, and it, it it was cognitively overloading for a lot of people because they'd never seen anything quite like it. It's kind of kind of like the early days of cinema when, you know, when the train came at the audience, this is a great story about how the train comes at the audience and everybody, you know, ducks because they think they're going to get hurt uh, in a the movie theater. Um, people had very similar reactions of not knowing how to steer um, because it was so new. In fact, they had to invent some new algorithms to handle the variety of steering types of people who would just flail around versus people who might have played some games before and had some skill. Uh, everybody had to just be able to learn it in five minutes and enjoy it, um, and for the most part, they did. It was, it was pretty fun.
0: And how did that experience impact you and your career for the next few years?
1: Well, I mean, it's the only reason I, I got there was because um, I had done a demo in a small startup company in Seattle and borrowed some of the same company's equipment. SGI made the made the graphics hardware. So we borrowed it because we couldn't afford to buy it. And they wanted to come and see what we did with it. And they were pretty impressed. And so they connected me with the secret project. So I, that's the only reason I even got there. I wouldn't have known about it to even apply. Um, but as a result of it, I got to work with some really smart people at SGI who were later the same people who, who founded Intrinsic Graphics and uh, helped kick off Google Earth. So I would have never met those people had it not been for this Disney project. Um, I also probably wouldn't have had the same career because as a result of being one of maybe a hundred people in the world to get to work on really high-end, real-time 3D graphics. um, And, you know, I mean, high-end is not, you know, not Doom or Wolfenstein, which were the things that were kind of out on PCs, but really, you know, really fast and high detailed uh, VR kind of systems. I got that experience and that allowed me to go become a consultant for many years to help other people learn how to make their systems perform. And so so it kind of provided me a lot lot of employment uh, for at least a good 10 years uh, until more and more people got competent doing this stuff. And then I also decided, well, now it's time to move on from 3D graphics into into the next harder thing. Um, But it, it gave me that grounding and it also gave me an appreciation for how important the audio is, how important the quality of the art is. The whole show has to come together and it's not just about pushing polygons um, or field of view or anything like that. The the field of view of the headset was pretty terrible. It's probably only about 30, 40 degrees, but uh, the optics were great. And uh, because it was using CRTs, monochrome CRTs with a color filter, you didn't see any pixels. It was only VGA resolution. But you didn't see any of the screen door effects you see on a lot of headsets today. So it felt like it was infinite resolution and it felt like it was super immersive. And uh, and that was all thanks to this custom headset that our team built. Um, that was the best thing I'd ever seen at the time, for sure.
0: It's not ever about just one particular metric. It's really about the complete experience and no better place to learn about that than Disney who really understood what it meant to entertain and absorb our minds in some other experience.
1: Yeah, totally. I got a huge appreciation for designing theme park rides. I mean, you can think of it as, you know, Disneyland, Disney World are virtual worlds, right? They're physically constructed. You don't have to wear a headset. Uh, you might wear sunglasses when you're there, but but the world is built around you. But it is a fictitious world, and it's, it's designed to maintain this illusion of being in this mostly cartoon place. Uh, and that predates, you know, most of the hardware we're talking about. But when you walk around Disney World, think about how it was designed as a virtual world, how... The line of sight was so controlled that you can turn a corner and be in a new land and have had no idea that that was about to happen. Very, very intricate designs go into it, even things like forced perspective as are used on Main Street. Really interesting what Imagineering came up with in order to, to create this story, uh, the storyland of uh, of many stories in one in one place all folded together. Um, and the ride itself that we built had you know, had this long tradition of what they call dark rides, the same kind of when you're in a, a vehicle and you're going through inside a building, uh, like It's a Small World or Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, those are, those are dark rides. Uh, we followed the same design aesthetic for this, except you could go anywhere and you could, you could fly anywhere and, and you had a lot more freedom than you would have on, an, on uh, existing rides. So for Disney, it was a chance to play with storytelling. When the boundaries are taken down, and when you're not on track or rails, as they say, uh, but you can go anywhere you want, it, it created a ton of challenges for storytelling. That um, actually, in many ways, persuaded me not to follow VR uh, too too much because I saw how hard it was in order to create the kinds of stories that I wanted to create that were that were interactive and emergent uh, things I'd seen in fiction uh, that were just really really hard to do. And and even to date, even some of the best games still. Um, aren't perfect. They're, they're entertaining and they're, they're really good for what they do. But in terms of this open-ended gameplay, being able to do everything, it's still really hard to do.
0: Yeah, here we are. It's almost 30 years, I guess, since you'd started working on that Aladdin's Magic Carpet Ride. And we're still struggling to figure out how to tell great stories in a truly immersive, interactive, and, and free-flowing, with all that freedom you imagine way. We still have a lot of work to do to make that possible.
1: Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. That There's still no better AI for storytelling uh, than a human in the loop, a dungeon master for D&D.
0: Yeah, our imaginations.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so some of my later ideas were were centering around this idea of putting actors in the world in order to play those key parts. I actually tried when I was at Disney, I think it was 97 that I pitched this, but I really wanted to do something Star Wars related at Disney. Uh, since so they had some kind of relationship uh, with Lucas back then. Um, that would have been like an immersive VR Star Wars experience. But the key was have real actors play the key roles of Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader. Don't try to have the the guests become those characters because they some of them may be really good. Most of them won't be great. Uh, so get actors to do those roles, but let everybody else participate. And I, I still think that would have worked. The, the, the claim in 97 was it was too early to pull off anything like that. But I I, I do wish we had done that. I think it would have been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's super interesting. It reminds me, at Disneyland, there's a, an experience in a part of the park where you can, as a kid, learn how to be a soldier, a Jedi Knight. And you get these lightsabers. And the experience that the kids are the trainees, and they they get to battle, at one point, Darth Vader. And so, the kids are the audience, right? They're, they come from the audience to participate in this thing, but then they have a couple of real actors on the stage who are there to guide them and to to play the role of the main characters and interact with them. And my daughters just loved it, loved it because it felt so yeah. real. And it did a large it was real, right? In that little sort of scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah I love that too. And, and there was one, um, when I, one time I went to Vegas, there was a, a restaurant that had really dressed itself up as Star Trek, right? It was, it was a, um, a Cardassian outpost or something like that, and everybody was in costume. All the and, and it was the lead up to you know to a Star Tours like movie, but the pre-show was better. The the walking around with people dressed in the correct costumes to be inside Star Trek uh, was so immersive that you felt like I don't why would I want to go on a ride after this? This is actually the coolest part. Uh, and it's maybe because I like role playing, I like D and D in those games um, that I'm into. Maybe not everybody would, but but it's it's um, it was pretty amazing. And I think I think we're we're going to see more and more of that as, as AR gets better, that we'll see this kind of immersive entertainment uh, that isn't just about going around and playing some modified version of laser tag, but but is really about the interaction and, and the dialogue and how well you play the part.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's still fundamentally about the stories that we tell in our minds, we tell to each other. Yep. And the more we feel connected to that, the, the more enjoyment we get out of it and the more we learn ultimately also from it. Mm-hmm. How is it you ultimately landed at Microsoft to work on HoloLens?
1: Oh, well, after... After I left Disney, and I left, I actually kind of wished at the time I had stayed. I left to go do a startup that didn't work out, uh, and only stayed at the, at the startup for four months. It was it was, it was kind of horrible. Um, but after that, I said, "All right, I'm just going to be independent." So for a lot of years, I was just an independent consultant, using all that experience I had with real time uh, 3D graphics and putting shows together. Did a, I did more work for Disney as a consultant after I left, um, and just kept you know using that same expertise for for a long time. Um, but at a certain point, and, this, and you know, various things happened. The company that I helped start called Keyhole uh, was sold to Google. So some money came in uh, from that sale. I could take a little time off and do my own thing. And pretty much after my wife and I had our first child, I kind of said, all right, I, I, get, I need to get serious again. I need to go work somewhere and get health insurance and be a responsible father and not just work on my own interesting projects. So at that point I said okay let's let's take a real job and and I did try one more startup that that one didn't work out too well either it lasted about six months uh, before it ran into problems uh, so at that point I was like okay no more startups for a while be responsible let me go work at a big company um, what had happened along the way was I turned out to be I was the only person at the time who had worked on both Google Earth and Second Life Second Life was one of my consulting gigs where I, I helped them rewrite their renderer and I help build all the objects in the world with, with a small amount of code. And I, I wrote a whole bunch of blog posts about what a crazy idea it would be to mash up Google Earth and Second Life. A lot of people were talking about it like, wouldn't this be cool to have a planet-sized virtual world and we could all walk around in it? Uh, and my response was, no, it wouldn't be cool because there'd be nothing to do. We'd be really bored because that kind of a capture of a world, that first instance of a mirror world is pretty static. So it would kind of be like walking around on a, on a frozen movie set and not even not even as good. And so you need something to do, uh, storytelling or otherwise. And so I wrote a lot about this, and it turned out that Microsoft was secretly working on exactly the thing that I was criticizing, and they were running into the same problems that I happened to be blogging about in public, and even though I didn't know their project existed. And so uh, this guy named Gur reached out to me and said, you know, come talk to us. And once I was there, I, I understood the problem that this thing needed a, a really serious redesign. Um, and I helped them. And, and so we, we, the project back, back then was called First Life. It was, was going to be this fusion of avatars and Microsoft's virtual Earth. Um, you know, and I, I came in and said, I, I don't want to do Google Earth again. I did that. I don't want to redo stuff or compete with other stuff I used to work on, but we can go figure out this new thing. And it's not going to be avatars walking around on a planet that nobody really wants that yet uh, until there's stuff to do. But we, re, we redesigned it and we redesigned it in something that, um, I think would have been super cool to, if we had built it, which would have been at the time called social, local, and mobile commerce. But essentially was what the AR cloud is supposed to be, which is this, you know, not a literal mirror of the world, not a literal copy, but it's the data about what's what in the world. It's the semantic data that we uh, were missing so that we could build applications that were spatially aware, contextually aware. So we've rebuilt this whole project around this idea. Um, later I called it Read Write World. Um but they didn't want to build it. And and there wasn't a lot of uh, vision. I remember one of the VPs famously said to me, mobile's never going to be big. Hmm. Uh, So why are we investing in this? And they canceled it. And so then I'm I'm at Microsoft in a nice stable job, but but the key reason I came was canceled. And so I had to look around in the company and look for other interesting things to do. And I found this group under Craig Mundy at the time uh, called the Startup Business Group, which was the idea was let's build some startups inside Microsoft so we can move faster and innovate faster. I thought that would be cool, so I joined the group and we did a lot of great brainstorming and came up with some pretty awesome ideas. We started to build one, uh, and it turned out to, to be not so awesome. And it, it kind of pretty quickly a bunch of decisions were made that made it kind of suck. And this this did get launched. It was it was called Avatar Connect or Connect Avatars, and it was essentially. We're going to use the connect in order to, to capture your body motion, mostly your, your head. And we can use that to create a telepresence session with other people. Uh, sort of a good idea in concept, but in practice, the tracking was so bad that if you look on, you can still see videos on YouTube of, of what it looked like. People's arms would flail over their heads and, and the tracking would just get lost in a, in a bunch of places. So it, it, it was better for comedy, I think, than almost than anything else. Uh, and there was one decision made that was a, a regretted one which was we didn't let people move around they had to sit in a chair so basically we invented the world's most boring mm. talk show because you just imagine sitting around with a bunch of friends if they're if they're interesting great we have stuff to talk about but in general it's just sort of people just talking uh, with with cartoon characters and so it wasn't wasn't great it didn't do well and I sort of saw that early on, and I started working on an alternative to it that I was that I was trying to pitch, which was use the Kinect. This is where we get back to the Star Wars hologram. Use the Kinect to capture this three D video version, which is as close to photorealistic as we can. Uh, and that you know got some traction. People were interested. Uh, you know, we were thinking about what if we shipped uh, the Kinect depth camera along with something like Skype, right? So you can now just not use a regular webcam, but actually have a 3D webcam, and we can make these conversations where the most important thing was that we could actually make eye contact. We could virtually move the camera from its real location into where it should be, which is in the middle of your screen, where the other person's eyes are. Uh, And we could do that through software and hardware and, and make a better chat experience. So I got really excited about that. Uh, and in fact, that's what got me connected because the same team that was building Connect later went on to incubate the HoloLens. Uh, that got me connected with all the right people uh, at Microsoft to try some of these crazy new ideas. Uh, it turns out it still had to wait because the field of view for the HoloLens was only going to be you know, 30, 40 degrees. Uh, that was the best that we could imagine at the time. And that's not good enough for doing this telepresence scenario. You need 100, 150 degree field of view to really do it well, unless people are really far apart. If you're sitting at any kind of normal distance uh, with the people you're talking to, you're going to need more like a 100 degree field of view. So uh, that's what inspired the work, but it, but it wasn't what we actually were able to ship at the time. But it did get me at least connected. And just like the... The Disney experience got me connected with these SGI smart people. Uh, doing this work got me connected with the right people inside Xbox uh, so that I was able to go over and help figure out the, the roadmap for AR and, and how to sell it, uh, how to make people uh, really interested in it. and. Uh, back then, the focus originally was actually starting with consumers. I think that's still a lot of the legacy of the HoloLens. It, it was designed as a consumer device, but it's not quite ready for that. And the scenarios aren't quite ready for that. Um, so they're focusing on industry. But, but originally, it was going to be something that you use in addition to an Xbox. So, so the, the mandate that we were given was go figure out the next generation Xbox. And it better be something that scares the management. Nothing. Don't pick something safe. Pick something scary. And I couldn't think of anything more scary than trying to get AR glasses working uh, in three or four years. Uh, so that was, a, that was a good choice. Uh, it took longer than that, and it took a lot more money than we had uh, initially estimated. But it was, it was still great to, to be in the right place and exactly at the right time when people were asking the question of what's next and willing to, to, to try and fund it. Um, so it was a really good convergence of people and ideas and need at that same time. Um, other than that, I think it's, it's, it's easy to say, maybe hard to prove, but I think had we not done this work at that time, probably Microsoft would have found a way to kill it later to, to basically never start it. You know, there are a lot of interesting projects like that. There are a lot of attempts at doing things outside the box, but there it's very easy for any one of those things to get killed at any point in the process. So it's, it's kind of miraculous in many ways that, that the project survived and made it this far. Uh, And it's good. It's a good thing that it did.
0: What was it about *Holland's* that allowed it to survive all of these critical reviews where it could have been killed off at any point along the way?
1: Well, I mean, I think in many ways it was kind of killed off and it had to get revived under different, you know, ownership in some ways. Some of the same people stuck with it, and it's a credit to them that they had the persistence, right, to, to keep going with it and not give up. But it went through – I mean, I was only there for the, f- the first less than a year of the project – um, some people stuck through it, you know the whole the whole six years and are still working on it today. But it had to bounce around. It was originally an Xbox project. Um, due to various reorgs and power politics issues, it it was considered as maybe this is going to be the future of phones, so maybe it should live in the phone business. Maybe it should live in the Windows business because it's, it's a visual interface to the world, so maybe it's it's you know good for operating systems. And and today, it's found its its life inside of the cloud computing space because it can really help sell uh, the need for cloud computing. If you think about all the stuff that needs to happen off the glasses, and in fact, the very very first design for this thing, the this, the um, proposal that I wrote was was to actually have distributed rendering, so the glasses wouldn't have to render everything themselves. That so this new super duty you know duper Xbox was meant to be the rendering system that would wirelessly beam. The graphics to the glasses, and the glasses might do just last microsecond, millisecond adjustments, but most of the work would happen off the box. And and you know, you see a lot of interest picking up in that because people are starting to realize that you can't really cram everything into a pair of glasses. If you do, they wind up being really big and heavy and, and hot. Um, so you know, as wireless technology gets better, you'll see more and more of these hybrid solutions. With they're talking now about it being the edge, but uh, but back then it was it was really going to be a machine in the same room that would do all that work. Anyway, the my goal personally for it was actually to replace windows, was was not something we said out loud because that wouldn't be politically savvy. But I was imagining eye tracking and the ability to use your natural gaze uh, and, and your body in order to interact with virtual things in the world in a very intuitive way. Um, and the very first version of the HoloLens did have eye tracking. It just it, it wasn't ready it wasn't quite good enough i think from what i understand and so it waited for v2 for for eye tracking to be there but it but it was meant in many ways to be the thing that replaces windows the thing that 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 supplants it with a better paradigm kind of ironic in many ways that it it for a while lived in windows and i think that's one of the reasons we see a very windows centric design as at least as of now maybe it'll change um, in the future, but but as of today, it's still boxes. There's lots of boxes to manipulate, right?
0: I think that's an, a natural tendency in general. When we move from one computing paradigm, computing platform to the next, we just bring the old UX with us until we figure out a better way to actually interact in that new paradigm.
1: I think I think that's true. But if you look at the history of 2D GUIs, you know that that was a little less true, right? I think we had the benefit of both Microsoft and Apple. Um, let's politely say, being inspired by the work at uh, at Xerox Park, uh, back all the way to the mother of all demos, right? That we 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 gained a lot, you know, as a as a species from having that work done in a way that everybody could look at it and be inspired by it and make their own version of it. Um, we don't quite have that for AR yet, and so I think that's what's missing. Is people are still clinging to some of the some of the old paradigms because. There isn't this open research group out there producing these things and, and making it available to everybody in a way that everybody can build off the same intellectual, you know, thought and, and lineage of ideas. Everybody's going off and inventing it themselves. I, it's not totally true. I think I do see some of it within VR games. As there's a lot of sharing, but um, but as far as I can tell, there's no group that's dedicated to just going and figuring this out and making it available to everybody. And I think that would be it would be beneficial if we had that. I think it would help everybody. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't quite exist. So we're still, different companies are taking different approaches on how to invent this interface of the future.
0: Is your perspective that that work is being done, the invention, activity, the exploration, and, and discovery of some good ways of interacting is just not being publicly shared? Or do you think the research itself is not that far along?
1: My impression is that it's being done secretly in various places and not being shared. Uh, and that... Um, some, some companies say like Microsoft is sharing. They, they have their MR TK that they're putting out there with this goal of making it available so that people can use some of the same ideas that they're coming up with. Uh, I, I just think it's a little too Windows-centric for everybody to use, but, but it's the right thought in terms of making it available. It's, 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 it's good for the industry to have things like that to build on. Uh, there are most likely other companies who uh, are working on their own that they're not talking about, And I'll be interested to see how those things turn out, how, how, you know, how good of a design can you do uh, quietly in secret without, you know, testing it. And if you have good enough designers, in theory, you should be able to um, pull it off. If you're able to do at least good UX research internally and test your ideas and validate them, you don't necessarily have to do that out in public. Uh, But you do have to do it somehow. You do have to you know, always test uh, and ground your ideas in reality of, of what works. It's very easy to get enamored of some new interface idea, but if you don't really thoroughly put it through its paces, it's really not worth much until until you've vetted it.
0: Yeah, and, and vetted it at a reasonable scale that it is actually relevant of yeah. the broader population, not just our tech elite in exactly. some major exactly. West Coast city that has an imagination of how it's going to be used and, and how they think about the world.
1: Yeah, but, but it also is it is an opportunity to rethink a lot of things and just to, to start over with some of these paradigms. So if if the best answer that people come up with is just to extend the, the current 2D metaphors into 3D, I think that would be sad. I think there's an opportunity to do a lot more and I've had a good opportunity myself to work on many of those things. Uh, so I'm highly inspired by what's possible uh, in, in the space of UX for for AR and VR. Um, but it still remains to be seen what, what level of risk people are willing to take in trying ideas that are so new that they would have to be learned, that you wouldn't be able to just sit down and assume you know how it works like we do with 2D GUIs, but that's only because we've had them so long we forget what it was like when they first came out uh, and how new that was.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Even just looking back a few years at iOS, for example, and the sort of finger-based with capacitive touchscreen sort of GUI that was created there, even that was layered on through multiple generations of iOS releases. became more and more complicated and we think it's intuitive today uh, and natural, but that's only because we've been spending a bunch of years learning all these different multi-finger touches and three-finger touches and all these different directions of moving the finger. And we now have expectations that have been set through this training, and now it's intuitive, but it wasn't at first.
1: Yeah, now it's been learned, I think. I still haven't totally learned it because uh, evidence is every couple of days, my flashlight on my, on my iPhone is turned on and I, I'm not always, always sure how I do that. Um, I know how to turn it off. But I, uh, I'm not really familiar, I'm not really aware of what motion I must be doing in order to to accidentally trigger that. So I haven't fully learned um, myself. And it, you're right; it has gotten a lot more complicated, especially as you start removing, you know, buttons. Uh, you got to do a lot more things with the same tools that you have of, of gesture and touch. Uh, but for AR and VR, I think we have a lot more options. I think we aren't hopefully not limited to just one thing. I mean, just if we were limited to only using Microsoft style gestures, for example, that would be too limiting. I think that would not give us enough options to try things that are more intuitive. Not that that isn't intuitive in many ways, but it's it's also a little tiring. It's also holding my hands up in front of me is not something I'm going to want to do for long periods of time. So there need, need to be other input met, uh, modalities that are more like the mouse, not necessarily stuck in 2D on a table, but have the qualities of the mouse uh, that we enjoy, which is you barely have to do anything. It's very low amount of effort, uh, easy to learn, but low effort to achieve a lot. Uh, painting, drawing, clicking on windows, all these things are doable with the mouse. Um, we haven't yet you know, seen anybody come out with the, the thing that is like the mouse for AR and VR yet. The controllers, I don't think, count, because they mostly rely on you holding your hands up, which is only good for a short period of time. It's good for exercise. It's good for Beat Saber, um, but it would not be great for work, I think, for the most part.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting challenge because our our fingers, our hands are tremendously nimble, great manipulators. They're really useful. We use them with our trackpads and and our mice in front of us, but they're really only useful for extended periods, as you noted, if they're at rest. We're mostly supported by something else. And so using a camera to interpret what's happening at that part of our body is not particularly comfortable for any extended period of time, but some other mechanism of being able to interpret what's happening there with our fingers has some interesting potential. Certainly when we think about it in the context of some other sources of input, like the eyes, the gaze, as you noted previously as well. But one of the things that you yep. had experience with also is on the audio side, what drew you to Amazon and tell us about the project you got to work on there as well.
1: Sure. Um- well, after, after working on the HoloLens starting in 2010, somewhere I did the, the, work, the bulk of the work on it. I did a little bit related to AR later when I, when I moved to Bing. Um, it, it, it became evident to me that it wasn't just going to take four years and a couple hundred million dollars, that it was going to take a lot more than that to really pull this off. Um, so we were a bit naive. And, and so I started thinking about what could be done more simply, what could be done with just spatial audio. And I've, I'd gotten exposed to some pretty good spatial audio uh, along the way. And so I was really interested in you know when I joined Amazon, I think it was 2012. Uh, I couldn't work on AR initially because there was this non-compete clause that technically is only enforceable in Washington State. But I, even though I lived in California, I still wanted to be careful and not not like, get into trouble with anybody. So I did a couple other things first, but then when when I was able to a year later work on AR, I was like, no, let's go let's go solve this whole spatial audio challenge and and at least solve the fashionable eyeglasses problem. And it wasn't just me. There were people at Amazon who had worked on Google Glass before, and they, they sort of started at the lightweight end of the spectrum. Not that I think Glass was that fashionable, but but the idea was to make it something you could imagine wearing all day long. So here was the opportunity to start with the the, the chassis, which needs to look like a normal pair of glasses, and, and fit what you could fit inside of it even if there's no display, and in effect, especially if there's no display and no camera, uh, because there's a ton you can do with just audio. And so we explored that. I spent a year prototyping uh, all the cool things that you could do with audio interaction and voice interaction. Um, you know, the most obvious was Alexa, right? And that's, that's the one big thing that you could do on the Echo Frames that they've launched today is this idea that it's it's your personal assistant, but it's not sitting in the kitchen anymore or the living room. It goes wherever you go now and you get the same uh, quality of Alexa, but it's now even more personalized because it knows the difference between you talking and other people talking. So that's a that's already a big win of being able to have that assistant follow you around. And this was still all the early days of being aware of all the privacy issues as well. So uh, there's there's a lot of things that I, I probably would do differently now too, but uh, it, was a, it was a pretty good take. And it was meant to do a lot more as well. And, and I don't want to talk too much about it, but the, the potential for hearables or wearables is really in upending the way that we communicate, and you know, people have gotten so tired of, te- of voice phone calls and leaving voice messages, they've sort of left that uh, by the wayside and adopted texting uh, because it's asynchronous. Because you can text, you don't you don't need to worry if someone is busy or not busy; they'll get to it. Maybe not right away, but they'll get to it. So, I was very interested in this. What could be done asynchronously that could replace texting with something that was even more natural? Uh, and I'm still very interested in those ideas. And some of the work that I've been doing since I left uh, Apple has been just thinking about that problem of what if all I had was, it was a pair of headphones maybe? What could I do with audio communication that would be better than what we do today? And So I have some ideas, and there's things that I want to work on. I also have some, some hesitations around especially around the privacy issue um, and I've also think my, my views on on what's beneficial have changed a bit like I think in 2013, 2014 I would have said making people feel more connected to each other is the most important thing. but then you look at a company like Facebook who that is their motto is to is to make people connected to each other and I don't think it, it is the most important thing. I think I think people have other needs uh, and people don't necessarily want to talk to their, family all day long. They don't necessarily want to be connected all day long uh, because it can be exhausting. And sometimes we need to focus on work and do other things. And so it isn't just about giving people bigger and bigger pipelines for communication. It's also about learning when is appropriate. Like uh, the best way this was put to me, wasn't my phrasing was computers need to learn politeness. They need to learn when to interrupt and when to not interrupt, when to add to a conversation and when to shut up. Uh, and they don't understand that yet. You still need, you'll still, you see messages come in, you know, even while we're talking, I probably had a few uh, IMs come in. Uh, and unfortunately I can't mute because that would affect the recording here. So, so uh, you know, these things come in at inopportune times uh, and our computer is not smart enough to know that, hey, this is not the right time for that ding. Uh, save it, save it until I'm, I'm ready to, to handle it unless it's an emergency. Uh, and so they need to get smarter, and then there's a lot more work that needs to happen on contextual awareness, I think, before we push these all-day wearable technologies into our lives. We don't want to create uh, confusion and annoyance in people. We want it, We want these things to only be beneficial. Uh, so I think we have a lot of work to do before we get there. I think the Echo Frames is a good start, and keeping it to Alexa only for now is a good move because that's the easiest thing to sell. People buy these you know, these, these voice assistant devices uh, a lot. People are making very good use of them. Uh, and so it's a natural extension for the for the next couple of years anyway.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like a very natural extension given what they'd done before and what they'd already had created. It feels lightweight enough and useful enough to have potential potential adoption here in the early days. I think many people maybe have gotten to know you more broadly because of your next stop in your career. As you noted, Apple was... Prominent in your life for several years, what had you learned previously about what the market was interested in, what you believed in, that caused you, motivated you to move on to Apple as the next stop?
1: Uh, yeah, so in 2016, I was thinking about leaving Amazon. I had already done most of the key work that I could do on a, on what's now called Echo Frames, and it was just now a matter of, of building it. You know, the prototyping was 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 at a good state to hand it off. Uh, and most of the challenges lay really in hardware and making it cheap and and, and, and awesome. Um, and so I started thinking, what do I want to work on? And I had also worked on Prime Air at Amazon. That's one of the things I did while I was waiting to be able to work on AR again was to help build a lot of the operator interfaces and initial testing interfaces for, for flying drones. Uh, I went back for a little while to work on that Um and then realized that you know, after coming coming down to visit with NASA and working on all sorts of um, interfacing questions about how is this new system around drones going to work, I kind of realized that wasn't what was motivating me as much at the, at the time, although I think it's still a good project and, and, and important, um, going to be super important in our lives in, in a couple of years. I really wanted to get back into solving this challenge around around all-day consumer AR glasses. And so what I can say... Uh, proactively about this is, well, I can't talk about specific products. I can say that my role was very much like what I did at Microsoft and Amazon, which was prototype the future. Take whatever we can take. If we have to build new prototypes, we'll build them. If we take off the shelf, take it. But prototype those experiences that convince people of what the right path is and do it cheaply, do it quickly, do it in in two to six weeks of work. Show somebody in rough form what the future several years in the future could be like with more polish but do it in such a way that you can convey the correct emotional reaction to the future so that we can tell if we're going to love it or hate it as early as possible. That was my job was to go figure out what parts of this whole space are compelling, exciting, they have legs and try to also weed out the things that are the false directions that we might be lured down but that aren't as promising. Uh, so we don't go spend a billion dollars on those things, um, but the right people and time and effort could be put into the right thing. So that's the kind of thing I like to help with. And I, uh, even after Apple, I still do that with with the companies that I advise. I try to help them on figuring out what the future is going to look like, less so on helping them solve specific technical issues because that each of the startups I work with, that that's their expertise that they're putting on the line. My job is often to come in and help them figure out what's going to work especially in the market, um, since that's what I focus on so much, is what what are consumers really going you know, to light up when they, when they see and, and, and do, and what other things are probably going to happen later or as, as side effects. Or if they happen, could be negatives. I mean, you know, this can never rule out the, the, the notion that somebody will build something super compelling, but it's going to be really bad for us. Uh, and so that is one of the reasons I didn't go to certain other companies. I did interview at other companies who were interested in AR uh, and v r and i i it was mutual in many cases I said this is not for me i don't i don 't want to go work on something where the business model is going to corrupt the goodness the benefit of the product the the, the idea is these things should work to elevate humanity as a whole, not just make money for the company.
0: Can we explore that a little bit? You have such a deep appreciation for some of the the companies in the industry, and while we you can 't talk about the specifics of some of the things that you 've You've worked on there, it is sometimes helpful to to place at least the the, the larger orbiting bodies Microsoft Google Facebook apple Amazon kind of how they fit what their mindset is what their core DNA is then might inform how they might leverage the sorts of technologies that we're collectively' are, they're creating. Can you describe from your perspective what the core ethos is maybe it's driven by mindset or, or core values or business model or whatever it happens to be of some of those major players and, and how that gives them an advantage?
1: Sure. So, so you know, just to be clear, I, I have never, even though we sold a company to Google, I didn't join Google. So I've never worked at Google. I've never worked at Facebook. But I do know a lot of people there. And I've, I've certainly studied the companies enough and, and the news around them to be able to speak to it in general terms. Uh, people who are employed there might disagree and say it's, it's different. But But I also try to give the benefit of the doubt, even in cases where things seem a little crazy. The the biggest difference, I think, the way I would describe the difference between, let's say Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google, and maybe even throw Disney in for good measure is of of all those companies, I think that Apple and second Microsoft are, they understand they're in the business of providing value to customers. right? Uh, A lot of Microsoft's customers are business customers, which may have their own customers but Apple is very much a consumer products company and their customers are all of us, the end customers, everybody who who uh, chooses to, to, to buy Apple products. Uh, and I'm not going to speak for the company, that's not my job, but I was always very impressed by how customer focused they really were, that they think really hard about how are people going to use these products? How are they going to like them? How are they going to relate to them? How are they going to feel about them? And I didn't see that level of obsession around around customers anywhere else. And Amazon has it as a leadership principle. One of their leadership principles is customer obsession. But I didn't find it to be as true as as maybe they would like it to be. Uh, and an example maybe at Amazon is just look at the website, right, the shopping website. I think economic forces have caused it to look pretty much the way it's looked for, uh, for many years now. And I tried to show them a few options of things that would be different, like especially around shopping on phones and tablets, how we could make use of touch. But it's really hard to change something that's making a million dollars a day to say, here, I have this new version. It's different. You've got to prove it's going to make at least a million dollars a day. And you can't prove that unless you try it. So it's very hard to put these new ideas out there and change. And so they more or less have what they're, what they're stuck with. I, I think at heart, Amazon tries because it, it tries to make itself be a collection of startups. They they have this idea around two pe- uh, two pizza teams, right? So you think about how many people could have a, a, a just two pies will serve the whole team. And it's you know, depending on the size of the people, I guess, uh, four to eight people, right? They want their teams to be small and agile uh, and be able to come up with new ideas, but it lives within a greater ecosystem of needing to, Prove your ideas out, and when you prove them, you get more resources, and you, you double down and build a greater team and more product. But you have to get through that first step of being able to prove that something is is going to be big. And um, they have many success stories like that. Amazon Prime is, is is the you know first one that comes to mind for many people. It started with one person's idea, uh, and they were able to grow it out. But but then many other things don't quite make it that far. They don't they don't they're not able to, to incubate well enough to be able to prove themselves. I think Microsoft is is mixed in the sense that they uh, they would very much and I think especially recently since since Satya took over want to be more like a collection of startups and, and people can have good ideas and they try to come there. But the time I worked there, it was a very difficult thing. It, it was it was it was not um, as liberal of a, of a culture at trying new things. So it's kind of a miracle that we were able to to pull off what we pulled pulled off. And and credit for that really goes to the team and the people that stuck with it for so long. But but as a company, they weren't as as good at fostering that kind of innovation. I mean, I remember being in Bing, and, and my job was to try to architect a developer platform, a developer-facing platform for the web stuff. Uh, and I'm like, well, we gotta use JavaScript because everybody's using JavaScript. And I ran up against people who were like, no, it's gotta be C-sharp. I mean, this is web development. It's C-sharp is, is not what people want to use. But you know, that was the kind of thing I ran, ran up against back then. Disney was an interesting specimen. And it was a long, long time ago, so things may have changed. But Disney culture was more around pitches and sales. It was kind of like, maybe this came from the Hollywood DNA. Um, the people who did really well at Disney were really good salespeople. They could come up with a nice presentation and a great pitch and get funding to go do a great idea. Uh, that's very different from these other companies as well. I mean, uh, Microsoft was very focused on the organizational structure and the building of orgs around new ideas. Apple, I think you could say, very focused on consumer ideas and what's next in the evolution of, of really helpful consumer technologies. Google, from my you know view uh, externally, still seems very engineering driven, that they're willing to try new things. And the engineering managers have a lot of power to go and, and try a new product, but they don't necessarily have all the tools they need to be successful. They don't necessarily have all of the design shops and all of the UX research in place to be able to figure out what's going to be a great product. So they have seem more willing, at least in the past, to just throw things out there and try them and see what happens and then kill off a whole bunch of them, uh, which I don't know if it's necessarily the best way to go about doing things. And Facebook, leaving them for last, uh, suffers, I think, from the same problem that Google has, but what worse, which is you know They've so fully embraced this ad-driven, free access model that they can't change. They don't want to change. They don't, they don't want to move to a model of providing uh, value in exchange for money directly. Uh, and so everything is sneaky. Everything is stealthy. They have to go essentially behind one customer's back to make another customer happy. And, and I don't know that they literally sell our data, but they effectively do. They effectively are selling their users as a product for someone else, the advertiser, as the actual customer. And that forces them into all sorts of really weird places and decisions and, and, and lack of accountability that I think is not helpful. And we see this, this increasing backlash against it because uh, people just don't like how they're doing it, how they're telling us these, these, these we're finding out about these revelations about things that they've done, and they apologize and they move on, they say they won't do it, but it, but it just keeps happening. Over and over again, and people are kind of sick of it. Uh, they really want to see a change. I think Google, at least, my sense is they want to find a different business model, and they're willing to experiment with other ways of making money. Like say the cloud stuff, they're, they've opened up this whole business making you know eight billion dollars off of cloud services. That's great uh, because it's not advertising; it's, it's another way to make money. But I don't see I don't see Facebook taking those same steps. Uh, and, and when I had the opportunity to talk to some of the leadership at Facebook, I asked them that question point blank. If you had, if you had the opportunity to try new business models uh, that didn't require advertising, would you? And the answer I got from most everybody is yes. But we wouldn't stop advertising. Like we would do that too. We would also try to make money other ways. But there's nothing wrong with the core business model that we have. And. My opinion at this point is, yes, I think there is something wrong with it. It it, it provides all the wrong incentives for a customer-facing company. It, it, it's working for the wrong customer, essentially, mm-hmm. is, is, the, is the problem. And it's, uh, in many ways, a race to the bottom because the people who are going to do the best, the employees who are going to score the most points are the ones who are going to bring in the most ad revenue, and that requires making some compromises on on, on the choices that we make. It's not that the individual people aren't Individually ethical, but collectively the reward structure is incented for doing the less ethical thing uh, with regards to the end customer, and I think that's what's caused them all this problem. Fundamentally, it's the business model. If they can change the business model, I bet you the same group of people would be capable of doing some really some really impressive things for social benefit because they have that in their in their DNA too. They want to help. They want to be the connecting company, but then they do all these things that that undermine the safety in many ways of their of their own customers.
0: That's a really difficult position to be in, right? Because you could be an honorable, well-intentioned person, but because the the corporate entity itself has its own momentum, its own DNA, its own way of being and surviving, it's really difficult to push against that, even if your intentions are positive.
1: And even if you have a lot of power, I mean, you look at what happened with the acquisition of WhatsApp, which was a product that was, what, a, a dollar a year, I think, at the time they, they acquired it. So it had funding uh, from, from its user base. And it didn't need advertising, and it was fairly secure. And it got pulled into this system where the the founders, who who in fact demanded, as part of their deal, board-level position. There's there's no more powerful position in the company than being on the board, because theoretically, not in this case, but theoretically, you have the right to fire the CEO. Um, So it's a super powerful position, and yet you see board members coming out and saying, Facebook needs to be broken up. You see co-founders of Facebook saying Facebook needs to be broken up. Uh, so that tells you something. something's pretty wrong when the people who should have the most power are saying they can't fix it. Ultimately, it's going to be the business model has to change in order for it to get fixed. If it doesn't, then the only solution is going to be regulation. It's going to have to be regulated. Because just like other industries that don't naturally do make the best choices, industries that pollute, industries that uh, car industries that, that don't have the financial incentive to get the best gas mileage all the time... Uh, they need the regulation in place to force them to do it because the the game theory, the business model of the company isn't going to achieve that positive end result on its own,
0: yeah, what's in the best interest of the individual and the society as a whole is not necessarily what's in the best interest of that business model, that corporation, and so that's where the external force needs to be applied,
1: yeah, and I, I wish Facebook would do it voluntarily. I wish they would they would address this, but so far it seems like they they're they're not, and they talk about privacy, but I don't think that they're really. Um, committed to it because they haven't really changed their policies. They haven't They haven't said, oh, Oculus users, we're going to throw away the data uh, and we're never going to use it to market for you. They don't say that. They say the opposite. They say we may actually use it to market. We may not be doing it today, but at some point in the future, we, we certainly would like that opportunity to use uh, A- VR today and AR that they want to work on for the future. We want to use those as platforms in order to, again, make money off of your attention. It's going to be 10, maybe 100 times worse when it comes to all-day wearable AR glasses in terms of the amount of exploitation that is possible, uh, I can't guarantee that they will take all those, make all those choices. But based on history, it seems like they will. They make will make the choices that, that in many ways undermine their users instead of protecting people.
0: And what is that data, that 10 to 100 times more data that they can collect? And what do you think they could do with it or some other company, whether it's them or somebody else?
1: Yeah, it could be it could be anybody, and if they don't do it, someone else might. That's usually one of their excuses as well. That if we don't do it, someone else will. Well, they've talked a lot about about mind reading and wanting to use technology to be able to read people's minds. Uh, the technology today is still a bit weak. We can read some intentions from brain scanning. We can we can train ourselves to think certain thought patterns that will result in a UI uh, input device. But it's not the level of, of of mind reading, and part of the part of the reason why it's not is you also need to understand the user's environment. So actually the technique and technology that is more powerful today than mind reading is eye tracking. Uh, and I, you know, I, wrote a, I wrote a longer article about it and can't really cover all the points in, in, in a short format, but, but the gist of it is if there are front-facing cameras that can see what your eyes see, and that there are cameras looking at your eyes or other technology looking at your eyes, telling where you're looking, we can tell exactly what you're focusing on in the world at any given time. And the way your eyes move is very telling. Our eyes jump around. We can't see the whole world the way we think we are. Uh, We only really see a very small window clearly and everything else is blurry and our brains are tricking us into thinking that we see it all clearly. And there's many experiments you can do that will show you this is true. And I was very surprised to learn it myself, but it's absolutely true. And the article um, goes into a lot of detail about how that works which I'll, I'll, I'll skip, but the, the end result in is because our eyes move around this way, the computer can understand essentially what we're thinking about that's in the world. It can't determine if you're th- having a daydream about something in your past or future, but it can definitely tell how you're interfacing with the world around you. And so if you're out shopping, it, it knows your level of interest in everything you see, every product that you see. You don't need a like button anymore. The like button is automatic The the, the algorithm can tell if you like something or don't like something. It can tell your level of interest. It can tell your level of arousal. And so being able to infer people's relationship status with each other, whether somebody has a secret crush on somebody else, all that stuff will come out if you wear eye trackers. The question is, what do you do with the data? If that data is used for the benefit of the customer, it can be super powerful. The idea that a computer system can learn all of my native reactions all of the things that i like and don't like means if it were used for me it could it could streamline streamline my life it can make my world better by helping to filter out the noise and helping to avoid things i don't want to see and help me pay attention to the things i do want to see but if it's used against me it can be used for a kind of advertising that we have barely begun to see which is which is super manipulative. We, we've seen manipulative ads. There are some really good examples of manipulative ads that pull on the heartstrings. They make you cry. They make you care. Um, but they do so in a very generic way. They don't know enough about you individually to know what your triggers are. And for some people, let's just take, take the politics for a second, their trigger may be around ab- the issue of abortion or wars. And so if they can figure out that your hot-button issue is abortion, they can provide advertising which gets you to vote for or against candidates who are with you or against you on, on, on those issues. And because you're so passionate about that one issue, you may ignore a whole bunch of other issues. You may wind up voting for a candidate because of that one issue who is actually going to help you get kicked out of your job, get you kicked off health insurance, uh, get you infected by diseases that were not properly taken care of. All sorts of things may be against you. But you voted emotionally because of one issue. And I'm not saying you're wrong for feeling that way, but but you gotta look at the bigger picture of, of who's actually gonna be better uh, leadership in government. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play favorites right now, but but we have been manipulated my whole life. Like I'm right now trying to get to, to get off of animal proteins and trying to go as plant-based as, as possible. I'm one of those people who was convinced that animal proteins are better and healthier and I needed it. And was, my eyes were open by looking at the actual research and, and seeing seeing how much of that was BS that came to me through advertising. And I wanna make my own decisions. I wanna make my own decisions based on rational uh, data science uh, about what's, what's better for me and my kids and, and what do we wanna do and not be persuaded by these things. But we are gonna be more and more manipulated. And one of the examples I like to give is a thought experiment, but just imagine that the system knows you well enough to know that you have a secret crush on person A and your best friend, let's say person B, and we've shown you a whole bunch of cars randomly in the environment in a way that you didn't even notice that we were showing you them. And we can create this this really powerful commercial using your favorite car that you don't own, putting the person that you have a crush on in the passenger seat, your best friend driving, using their avatars because of course, They didn't click the checkbox saying, don't use my avatar. They didn't care. They didn't think about what the implications were. And now some company is creating this highly manipulative ad that's going to get you to buy this car or feel really bad about not having it. Um, And a lot of people will be persuaded by that. They'll be susceptible to that. Um, And that really concerns me. I think we're going to be living in a world in which we can easily be controlled because there will be so much of this information. Uh, We absolutely have to. Put a stop to that. We have to either regulate it or get companies to today voluntarily stop moving in this in this direction, because as soon as we have these all-day wearable glasses with eye tracking, that's when the Pandora's box really opens up. And if and if, if we let companies become addicted to the profits that they're going to get off this, it's just never going to change. We're going to be stuck with this forever. Uh, it's, it's important enough that even though it may be another three to five years for a lot of people before you know, AR and VR is, is so dominant in their lives. Uh, that's still not enough time to go invent the new business models and create the alternate ways of doing things that are ultimately going to going to uh, serve everybody instead of um, instead of overwhelm them and enslave them in many ways.
0: Does the action need to to happen at such a high level? Or are there things that the the designers, the engineers, the startup CEOs can do to have a positive? impact on ensuring that these systems and the corporations, the dollars behind them are not our overlords, are not enslaving us and manipulating us without our consent, our awareness. The conversation with Avi continues in the next episode. In it, he suggests what the industry needs to do to give ourselves the best future, as well as some of the challenges we face, which are compounded by certain business models. He cautions we should be ready to reject companies and products that aren't trustworthy. He goes on to describe why he's hopeful about the potential for AR and what he'd do with a giant pile of money within this industry. I think you'll really enjoy the rest of the conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss this or other great episodes. Until next time.